Good morning. I am so delighted to be a part of Loma Linda University. I love being here. More than half of my professional career has been a part of this university. And when I was gone at four other universities and other institutes, uh, my time spent here early on as a student uh, certainly prepared me well. I'm delighted to be the speaker because it's coming out of that genre that says our voices. So I get to give my personal testimony. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be turning 65, and that causes me to look back. Now, I know that when I was in these pews uh, in the fall of 1969, someone is saying they were 65 or almost. I thought, that's old as dirt. And uh, as you see me hobble up, it's not because I'm almost 65, it's because I'll never allow myself to think that way. So this is a racquetball injury and also my dirt bike with my son. <laughs> and I don't plan to stop that at all. I have a real delight in being uh, the university uh, provost. It's an honor that uh, I really, back up here, is an honor that I would have never guessed uh, that I would uh, have. Most of the people who see me around campus um, see me around graduation time when I carry the mace. And uh, one of the things that I'm pleased to do today is to try to establish my own separate identity. Uh, most of the time I'm in committees and running different academic affairs and strategic planning and things like that, uh, assessment and, and accreditation. Over and over at graduation I have families come up and say, uh, Dr. Hart, would you have a picture with us? And uh, Dr. Hart, thank you so much uh, for the good education we've had. And uh, I'm often uh, not sure what to do. I don't want to embarrass them, so very often I'll go ahead and smile and take the picture with them. Um, actually, the truth of the matter is, uh, Dr. Hart, our president, is the taller, smarter one, uh, but I'm the one who has hair, and I'm actually sweeter than he is. So. <laughs> Um, I, I didn't always uh, look this old and fat. In fact, when I first came here uh, in the fall of, oh, first of all, this is my lovely wife, Kathleen, who is a, a, a teacher in the School of Nursing. Uh, when I arrived here in 1969, I was uh, six foot one, uh, 185 pounds of, of, of strong muscle, uh, but graduate school beat me down and, and I left. Uh, eight years later, um, 5'10 and 245 pounds. <laughs> I, this was my wife when uh, we met and married here. Uh, when I finally graduated, and it did take me almost eight years, of course, during that time, I also went um, and took a sojourn to study at the seminary and uh, pastored uh, a church and was a college chaplain during the last couple of years before I finished my doctorate. Here our first child was born. These are my lovely three uh, children, uh, each born in a different uh, generation from uh, uh, a different decade, from the same wife who just wanted to raise each uh, child as, as a separate one. Um, <laughs> this is the clan now with son-in-laws, and uh, my oldest daughter is a pediatrician, and her husband is an international account manager, and her three uh, wonderful sons. My second child, uh, Jessica, is a dentist uh, in Anchorage, Alaska. That's her dog that she's holding with a, a <laughs> silly little uh, sleigh gear on it. And uh, her husband is an engineer 
and my son, uh, who is taking after me, uh, is a, a football enthusiast, and he's a junior business major at, at Walla Walla. And my dear lovely mother, who is uh, 92 in just a couple of weeks, um, is, is watching this morning, so hi mom, I love you, and uh, <laughs> this whole family thing is your fault. You know, I really do love being here, but I hated the place when I first arrived. I really did. I came from the East Coast. Uh, there's a certain culture uh, back in the Carolinas and Tennessees that you couldn't find here. I looked for where all the moss and uh, greenery would be in the mountains and was disappointed with all the dust. And uh, actually, I was shocked. It, it took my uh, heart jump when after one week of being here, the smog cleared away enough for me to see that there was mountains over here, and, and I really, I actually thought, is that some kind of a, a Hollywood backdrop for a movie or something that's put there? Seriously, um, one of the things that really concerned me is that I came to a small graduate program, a PhD in biology, and across the campus, nobody had any idea that there was a PhD program in biology on this campus, and uh, we felt like second or third class citizens, and to this day, you probably don't know, we have a master's degree here, in geology uh, on the campus. Um, and so as I'd walk around, um, especially these herds of students moving from one class to the next, all of you who are in block programs, know that you do have a real signature on campus as you move in this herd-like movement. And it seemed like I was always going upstream or against you. And uh, as I was walking along, I would smile at, uh, at people, and no one would smile back. And uh, so I know this sounds silly, especially I'm supposed to be a dignified provost, but I, I actually stopped and said to myself, is there a problem with my smile? <laughs> and, and so uh, as I was coming here by uh, Griggs Hall and Mortensen Hall and, and a group of uh, students were coming from the amphitheater, um, I gave my traditional smile and no one smiled back, so I froze the smile and I ran into the bathroom, looked into the mirror, <laughs> and I said, oh God, now I know why they don't smile back. <laughs> You know, all that muscle inflection that I thought was indicating uh, a nice greeting, it looked more like I was wincing or I had some itch or something like that. So I've made a real habit uh, the rest of my life of going out of my way uh, to, to smile and nod at people and say hello. And what is great about being uh, 65 is that on this campus, all those lovely young ladies who wouldn't smile at me at first, you know, 40 years ago, you all are kind enough. Like, oh, look at the old grandfather, isn't he sweet? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm getting people constantly smiling at me and nodding with, uh, with uh, due obeisance. And I appreciate it very much. Uh, you can call me Ron, you can call me Doc, you can call me Elder, Provost, whatever. Just uh, continue to smile. And in fact, when one of my jobs is to interact with the accrediting bodies that come on campus, and over and over again, the accrediting bodies um, remark about how friendly this campus is and how polite the students, the faculty and staff are. The other thing that really impresses them is that when they ask questions randomly about what the mission is of this campus, there is a clear, distinct response. That people know the values that we have, the mission and the motto. And I appreciate so much the fact that more and more of you are clearly being told before you come to come and expect a certain kind of an environment.
I hope there are very few of you who are tricked uh, and don't realize what we're all about. And it's the journey that we're on, because we're certainly not um, perfect, but it is that journey collectively of trying to continue uh, the mission of, of Jesus Christ, to bring hope and healing and happiness to the world. To do that even though we have a large number of religions represented here. From year to year it changes. Currently we have 76 different religions coming from over 100 different countries around the world. And what's really our desire? Our desire is that you would come to this campus and that because of the learning environment that is being established, that your relationship with your God and you may call God by different names, but that you're God and you will come closer and closer and you'll have an intimate relationship. Now, I'm an ordained Seventh-day Adventist minister and I would love nothing more than to have you leave this campus valuing the teachings of our church. We have a little problem with that, and that is that in attempt not to be overbearing, in attempt not to be indoctrinating of a certain point of view, you may not even get an invitation to come to this church or to involve yourself in the different religious activities. I hope that's not the case because you're always welcome uh, to understand the, the principles and the teachings of this church, but most importantly to understand Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and his gift to us and that how we can be healing hands to the world. And I didn't really understand that stuff when I came here. In fact, I probably came to Loma Linda for the wrong reasons. When I was at uh, college back at a place called Columbia Union College, it was now Washington Adventist University, I really couldn't figure out what I wanted in life. So I was doing chemistry, biology, and theology, and uh, trying to figure out what it was that I would do. And I prayed constantly. Now, it's true, I wasn't the greatest uh, student. I was really into uh, football and the politics, and back in those years, Washington, D.C. was a wonderful place to be an activist and being involved in, in different movements. But I did study some and got, uh, you know, decent grades, but not a scholar. One night, uh, I had been praying, praying, praying for God to reveal his will for me, and a knock came on the door, and uh, out came, uh, or in came, this very tall, thin, nerdy-looking uh, theology major from Australia, and he, uh, he said to me, I perceive that you're having a difficulty knowing God's will. And I, I didn't know the guy. And, uh, you know, being a macho jock, I wanted to deck him right there on the floor. And, and I, so I said, what are you talking about? And he says, have you asked God for a sign? I said, a sign? You mean like a fleece? And he says, yeah. I said, no. He says, you should, brother. And then he prayed with me and walked out. Well. Um, I had, you know, pretty much decided that the way of life for me was to be science. And uh, so I was a hard study in chemistry and biology major, and I was working very hard to sort things out. And I had all these decision matrices and all these different kinds of wonderful ways of, uh, of truth um, calculations. And I was trying to figure out what I should do. And I was tossing back and forth between going to the ministry uh, or going into medicine, and I just wanted God to kind of give me an answer. So being the experimental person that I am, I said, well, you know, what would it hurt to do a little fleecing? And uh, so it was a winter night, uh, 
December, no, excuse me, January uh, 1969. So I went outside and there was snow on the ground and I went by this little uh, um, bench that looked down to uh, Rock Creek Park or Slugger Creek Park. And uh, I sat there for a while praying and I thought, well, you know, um, if God's going to answer my prayer, I have to confess all my sins first. So that took a long time. And so I was going through those things, getting colder and colder. And then I thought, well, you know, I've got to work myself into uh, kind of like the football frenzy, you know, all the times that we would get together in football. And I'd been playing tackle football since uh, seventh grade and had played for different uh, industrial leagues. And um, some would call it semi-pro, but it was more semi-semi-pro. And uh, so we, we, we played. And every time we'd get ready to to go out and, and, and play. We'd have our huddle and beat each other on the, uh, the helmets and things like that and you know, work yourself up into a frenzy. Well, I thought, well, this is the way God must work too. So I kind of worked myself up into a frenzy going, I believe, I believe, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. I know it, you know, hip, hip, let's go. And uh, <laughs> so, I, you know, it's, I'm out there in the cold now. It's been probably an hour since I worked myself up into this uh, kind of state of belief. And I said, okay, so here, and I thought, well, what's the sign that I want? I hadn't thought ahead. And I thought, oh, okay, great. If you want me to be a minister, send a shooting star from the east to the west. And if you want me to be an MD, send one the other direction. And so I thought, yeah, that's cool. Uh, God can do that. And uh, so... <laughs> And I got myself all worked up again and, and went through the, the kind of incantation and then said, and now do it, I believe. <laughs> Nothing happened and I began to calculate the speed of light and uh, figuring out how far the nearest star was and Figured out four and a half uh, light years would be my answer. And I thought, well, no, you know, God could have pre-thought all this and all this stuff could have been in motion. You know, that night, a miracle did happen. There was no shooting star going either direction. But there was an incredible sense of warmth that came upon me. Now, in retrospect, I understand just before you freeze to death, there is this <laughs> sense of warmth that comes. And I had been kneeling in, in the snow for quite a while, but um, there was a sense of holiness, a sense of God's presence uh, that really did transcend the moment. And I came back into the dorm that night with no answer, no answer whatsoever. But I had a sense that God was close to me and cared. Some days later, I had a recruiter come, uh, knock on my door late at night from Loma Linda and said, hey, have you considered uh, graduate school? And I said, no, what's that? And, uh, and I said, what do you do with that? And, uh, and then when they said, oh, we'll pay for your education if you come out, I said, oh, okay, you got my attention now. <laughs> and so I came out. But I came out with a whole different attitude than I should have had. I had a bunch of faculty uh, friends, both in theology and biology, who believed that the concept of evolution and the debate over creation was going to destroy the church. And they somehow, as a young, impressionable, gung-ho student, uh, in fact, all the, the personality tests had me as a guardian, I should have been a Marine, um, 
the kinds of things that they pumped me up to. They wanted me to become the crusader for creation and destroy all the evolutionists. In fact, um, this is no, not kidding, and I love the people uh, who, who inspired me this way. I think they were wrong, but they, they were wonderful people. They actually identified professors here at this university at Andrews also, who they believed were evil angels. They were agents of Satan because they belonged uh, to the group that supported evolution, particularly long ages and things like that. And so my motivation to come to this campus was to learn creation science and destroy the evolutionists. Now, I'm not sure if that's uh, wrong for everybody. It was certainly wrong for me. And I came out, and more and more as I studied the science and studied the people, there was conflict in my mind. Because actually, some of the individuals who themselves were identified as Satan's evil angels um, to me, I got to know them and find them to be Christ-like people who differently viewed things like the age of the earth and how much evolution is or is not acceptable within a biblical worldview. More and more I would see that good-minded people who uh, were motivated to protect the scripture, motivated to protect God's reputation, were going into the sciences to disprove evolution to the point that all they wanted to do was study evolution enough to find the first weakness so that they could quickly say the whole thing is to be thrown away. Those attitudes bothered me. And so I went on a trek in my life that uh, was very dangerous and one that took me through some dark, dark times. I began to say, if I am going to disprove evolution, I have to first know it better than anyone else first. I cannot make decisions based as an outsider point of view. So I began to study, did a postdoc, visiting professor uh, uh, with uh, one of the world's leading evolutionary biologists. I spent a number of years with graduate students from this campus um, at the Darwin Station in Ecuador. I got to meet some of the world's leading evolutionary biologists and uh, found that so many of them were Christ-like, uh, so many of them were seeking truth, and that so many people on the other side of the fence uh, also were seeking truth and Christ-like, but the conversation between them just never seemed to be appropriate. And I went through some very, very dark hours I published papers in uh, the Journal of Evolution, Plant Evolution, Animal Behavior, have looked at speciation in a wide variety of organisms, had graduate students uh, looking at uh, molecular systematics among uh, endangered species of iguanas, marine iguanas, land iguanas, uh, have studied uh, fish in, the, in um, Java, um, deep sea fish out of Hawaii, a number of different organisms trying to understand evolutionary mechanisms. And all along, especially as the information seemed to be more and more compelling that much evolution has occurred since the origin of life, God, did never, God never abandoned me. And in fact, if I could spend uh, the next couple of hours sharing with you the miraculous events that God has allowed me to experience miracles of healing. Um, I hate to even say it, but I was, as a chaplain, thrown in to a situation that was an exorcism, things that I just did not want as a scientist to be a part of. And throughout my entire life, I have heard um, things done and said and activities that for each one of them, I want to stop away and stand back and rationally say, ah, that happened by chance. Times 
when, for example, my hand was moving down towards uh, a rock where I was collecting rattlesnakes for an experiment that I was doing, and I had been sick for a number of days with the flu, and I was up in these mountains as a graduate student, and I heard a voice that said, stop, Ron, there's a rattlesnake. I couldn't move my hand. It was like something stopped it. And what I've been doing is I've been walking along and putting traps down underneath rocks, and uh, we were studying the interaction of some rattlesnakes with certain uh, organisms like paramiscus, these field mice. And as I was leaning down, I was so sick physically that I wasn't being cautious. I was sticking my head down under the rocks and then putting the traps in. And so when I heard this sound, I stepped back, looked, and there was a big western diamondback, not rattling, mouth wide open, ready to strike. He'd have caught me right in the face. And I was miles away from my motorcycle. I was already weak. And so for years, I tried to dispel that event by simply saying there was some subconscious sound that went on, and I'm a trained biologist, so I knew it was a dangerous thing. But as I look back over my almost 65 years, and I look at all of these events, tremendous points in time that individually I tried to explain away because I wanted to take the hard route. I wanted to be the scientist first. Didn't want to just be so quick to accept things by faith. But as I've looked back over, God has constantly been there in my life. God has not given me the answers intellectually that I've often asked for. Why does the fossil record look this way? Why do the molecular systematic data that I put together seem to appear to follow an evolutionary phylogeny? Why do those things appear this way? And many of them were driving me to be away from a trusting relationship, but over and over and over in my life, God has been there to say, I'm not here necessarily to give you answers. I am here to clearly say, I love you. I am with you. I support you in the journey that you're on. That's what I love about this university, is that we're on a journey. We're on a journey that is so unique in higher education around the world. We're on a journey that says we want to have the highest quality academics. We support critical and analytical thinking. Raise the tough questions. Do not be afraid to challenge your faith. Do not be afraid to challenge the world around you. But at the same time, we're saying the highest quality academics we want to put side by side with a high commitment to a personal relationship with God. In my own life, that commitment has been best explored through service. When you're out trying to take the expertise that you have learned and try to selflessly do them for others, it provides a special learning opportunity. We actually have decided to call it mission-focused learning. It's the learning environment on this campus where we seek the highest academics with the, heat, with, the, with the highest service commitment. And a commitment to our mission 
to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. Now, the piece that has been missing, I think, for many years that we're trying to emphasize more is that just hardcore study and hardcore service isn't enough. Another component is taking the time to reflect. Too often, people come back from mission trips where they have just been pulling teeth or bandaging this or sewing that, and they're exhausted. We need to find time in our curriculum, find time in our life here, in our co-curricular too, where contemplation is important. To sit back and think about that interaction of knowledge and service in a Christ-like way. When you put those together, I believe commitment comes out. And it's that commitment that allows transformation. And that's what mission-focused learning is all about, is to transform you, to transform me, to transform those that we serve, to transform the world. 4,520 of you are here, coming from over 100 countries. You're here as a third of you as undergraduates. The majority are working on doctorates. Close to 700 of you are working on PhDs. The rest of you, professional doctoral degrees like dentistry and medicine. We have a wonderful opportunity to show the world that holding the high standards of academics, being willing to ask the tough questions, but quietly waiting in meditation and prayer, living that balanced life that speaks to the wholeness piece. That we can model a certain education that the world desperately needs and we as individuals need. I guess if I had one closing comment, I would say, avoid the postgraduate syndrome. See, for me, I knew that I shouldn't get fat. I knew that I should keep up the exercise that I did as an athlete. I knew that I should do all those things, but I didn't. I'd stay every Thursday night. I wouldn't go to bed because I knew that on Sabbath I could sleep and catch up. So I did all experiments all Friday nights and wrote papers and those kinds of things. Uh, that took from my soul that took for my energy. I knew that I should have morning devotions constantly. I knew that I should take time to exercise. But in a stupid early way, I thought that was selfish. I thought taking care of my body rather than getting a better paper published or getting a next grant was somehow selfish. And in my old age, I can sit back and say, no, it's not selfish, it's stupidity. If you want to serve, You've got to keep that serving machine at a high peak. Exercise, have fun, play each day, listen to some great music each day, spend some time with loved ones each day, and yeah, study each day. But be a lean serving machine <laughs> for the Lord. You've seen pictures of my family. You now know that I'm not Dick Hart. 
You can call me Ron. Next week's vacation, make sure you connect with your family. Tell your parents, your siblings, your parents how much they mean to you. And know that you mean so much to us. Let's pray. Almighty God, for those who seek answers, I pray you'll give answers. For those who you choose not to give answers, then give, as you have to me, a special measure of feeling your presence miraculously in their lives. Grant them wisdom and success and safety and wonderful lives of joy.